Welcome back to the Buddy Ruski Show. This is episode number five. I'm here with my very good friend, filmmaker, musician, Killer Bees roster mate. What else can I say about you? UNC Chapel Hill alum. Yep, that's it. Those are the four characteristics that define me. I checked your Wikipedia. Did you know you had a Wikipedia page? No, I don't. I'm here with Holland Gallagher. Do I really? No. Oh. <laughs> Maybe after today. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Of course. How are you doing, buddy? I'm great. I miss this. Yeah. Holland and I used to do quite a bit of podding. You didn't even mention the podcasting that we did in my intro. Ah. It's like you've erased it from your memory. I It got erased, erased from Wikipedia. That's what happened. It wasn't on my Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, earlier in the year, as many of you listening uh, know, we did a couple podcasts uh, through the then Runaway Podcast Network. The RPN. The RPN. Uh, we did Super Empty, the Super Empty Show with Ryan Coca and Alex Yanis and Giannis. and Mandy Pageant occasionally. Uh, and then we did the rundown with Mandy and I and Holland as well. Holland was the thread that tied the network together as the producer and producer. semi-host of those shows. That's right. Now um, you're the producer and the host. Now I'm doing everything. Got boxed right out. I'm the YouTube. <laughs> now I put you in the seat that you were meant to be in uh, from the beginning. It's a good yeah. seat. It's a comfortable seat. For anyone that is aspiring to be a guest on this podcast, you'll get treated to a, a nice, comfortable red seat. And a glass of water. I do what I can to take care of my people. Holland, uh, like many of the guests that I've had on my show, all except one, I believe, is not from Durham, surprisingly mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. Holland uh, made his way to Durham by way of New Orleans and uh, has been here for some time. Went to UNC Chapel Hill, got a statistics degree, I believe, which is uh, interesting because... I don't really take you for a numbers guy. Yeah. You're more of a, an arts arts and entertainment guy. Uh, but I do want to backtrack and talk a little bit about how you did get to Durham from New Orleans. If I remember correctly, you are one of the folks or your family, I should say, or, or some of the folks that uh, were displaced from New Orleans during yeah. Hurricane Katrina. It's true. But I'd love to just hear more about having to leave New Orleans and, and why your family chose this area of, of all the places that you could go. Yeah, it was pretty uh, coincidental how we ended up here, I guess. We, yeah, as you said, I grew up in New Orleans, and as the storm approached, it like escalated in severity really quickly right before it hit. And hurricanes are relatively commonplace in New Orleans, so evacuating is not uh, like that big of a thing. Um, so a lot of people were not going to evacuate this one because it wasn't supposed to be that bad, but then right before it hit... Um, it escalated and became like a category five. And that morning before it hit is when we decided to get on out of there. Um, but why we ended up here is just because the freeway going west was like crowded. The freeway going east was less crowded. So we went east, ended up in Atlanta the first night where we saw the levees break uh, on TV, which indicated that we wouldn't come back right away as we had anticipated. So we moved on to a more permanent housing situation in Charlotte where my dad's sister lives mm. um, we were there for a few weeks and then feeling like we were kind of outstaying our welcome we moved on to Raleigh where um, a friend of my mom is uh, and we stayed there for a few weeks and then I think somewhere in there the decision was made to stick around and then my parents moved into like kind of a suburb between Raleigh and Durham then I went to middle school in Durham and I have been here ever since 
that's like the short version of the story. There you so go. your plan originally was to go back to New Orleans. I guess that was true for a lot of folks. They, like you said, didn't anticipate the severity of the storm. And so the plan was to go back, but you ended up in Atlanta for a little bit. Had you had your parents considered Atlanta at all? At all or no, we were only the... in Atlanta for the one night. We were going to okay. go to Atlanta and come back the next day. Um, so that day we went on to Charlotte. Yeah. And so when do you touch down in Raleigh-Durham permanently? How old are you then? You said middle school? Uh, yeah, I was. So the storm hit in 2005. So I was 11. So I didn't have a lot of influence in the um, family decision-making process, to, at least to my recollection. So it was kind of just decided for us, for me, yeah. you know, my parents. And did they, was it family that kept them close here? What What do your parents do? Uh, my my mom works in art museums. Usually she works in an art museum called the Ogden in New Orleans as a curator of arts education. And then my dad does post-production sound for film uh, and also ran a recording studio for a long time in New Orleans. So he's kind of like an engineer, a sound engineer. So when we moved up here for a little while, I guess they were both out of work as we were figuring out what we were going to do. But then at some point when we were after we had decided we would stay, my dad ended up actually getting a job at UNC School of the Arts teaching the same thing that he had been doing, which is ironic because he did not graduate from college, the several colleges that he attended. <laughs> um, and then my mom ended up going to Carolina, actually, to get her PhD in arts integration into education. Um, and she graduated with me, actually, the same year. And then she started working at a museum in Winston-Salem. So they were both in Winston-Salem a lot of the time. And, but you ended up staying in this area, even though they were sort of working out of Winston. It, it, this felt right for them in terms of your future for school. Um, yeah, I actually don't know why uh, the Triangle specifically was the place that they wanted to land, um, other than the story I just told you. I think another coincidence, actually, the tiny private school I went to in Durham for middle school one of the administrators there or one of the math teachers or something was like the sister of my math teacher at the school I went to in New Orleans. So there is like one personal connection, which that led to me going to school there. Yeah. What school is that? It's called Triangle Day School. Oh, it's yeah. like a rival of like Durham Academy and Duke School, kind of that small group of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I went there and then I went to high school. I was districted to go to high school in Cary. So I went to Panther Creek, which is like a brand new school um, when I went there. Uh, but all of my friends went to Jordan for middle school, so I was still pretty plugged in to that scene. Um, and then, yeah, obviously after I graduated, I moved back to Durham. So I've been living here since I finished college. And a lot of the people I lived with in college also were from Durham and went to Jordan. And so I stayed close with that whole crew really since I moved here. Yeah. Were you able to keep up with folks from New Orleans as you were making this transition because you're an only child yes and so um you know i'm sure a lot of your friends it's kind of similar to my upbringing a lot of your close uh, compadres become like family and when you're displaced like that you you know you're reintegrating you're making whole new friends yeah uh, you don't really have siblings um that you're like that can kind of root you in a in a new place like that mm. so um, were you able to keep up with folks? The internet, I guess, was kind of new at that point. So right. like Facebook and 
Twitter and things weren't really it's not really a thing. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, what was that experience like? Yeah, interestingly, I was one of the few people that didn't end up coming back from people I went to school with in New Orleans. So, and also, um, my family went back down pretty frequently uh, since we've moved. So I would say I've probably been back down an average of three times a year since we moved. So I am still there pretty frequently. And what was interesting about it is that seeing all of my friends from my childhood growing up, you could kind of envision like what my life would have been like in New Orleans and like where it maybe differentiated living in North Carolina. Um, and I was able to keep up with a few of them. I still have uh, three pretty close friends that I talk to pretty regularly, actually, because mostly because they're big NBA fans also. Um, and one of them ended, ended up going to Duke, actually. So he came out here and uh, was around, but we're in a fantasy basketball league like to this day. So I talk to them. I see them whenever I go down. Were you guys in school, in university at the same time, Duke UNC? We were, yeah, actually. Cool. Yeah. Chris How Stryfer. often did you make your way over here uh, to Duke's campus? To almost hang? almost never. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we would only see each other out Yeah, every now and then. As someone who's hung out on both campuses to varying degrees in the last decade or so, I have to say, as a diehard Duke fan, that I think I prefer hanging out in Chapel Hill. Yeah, Chapel Hill is fun. At least as a as a young college student, it's just a little more lively. And granted, downtown Durham and the Durham that we know today wasn't really the same yeah, when we were in high school in, like in two thousand seven to two thousand thirteen. Right. So yeah, um, yeah, Duke students have a lot more to take advantage of right now than they did when when I was visiting our friend Philip Hoover went to UNC Chapel Hill. And when I was in community college, I would go out to visit him a lot. Right. And, yeah. Uh, it's funny because I actually took the bus. There's a bus that goes in between both campuses. And so I would go on campus to Duke to take the bus that ran the Robertson scholarship bus Yeah. that ran out to Chapel Hill and would just like, you know, uh, bunker with him for the weekend. So yeah, it's a, it's a cool place to be. It's, you know, obviously big state school. Um, what, why were you interested? Cause it sounds like, both your parents are um, involved in the arts. And so how did you end up majoring in statistics? Because you were still involved in the arts on campus. You were performing, um, doing music production um, as in your former life. Is... <laughs> Can people still find that online? Yeah, my girlfriend Pearson said that recently at her house during the snow day, they were just watching a bunch of music videos and someone pulled that up. I'm really, I'm pretty embarrassed by it actually now. I really don't, um, I'm not proud of the music we'll from that, that era of my then. life. Yeah, we'll just bleep out when I say the Yeah, the, the name. actual name yeah. so people can't Google it. Um, so yeah, I guess you can still find it. But um, wait, what was the question? Sorry, you said something about... Just, oh, why did I major in statistics? Yeah, yeah. Why, why go, maybe not the opposite route, but why choose statistics when you could kind of stay in the family lineage of arts? Yeah. Um, it's on, on the surface, it seems like my family is really artistic, but actually what my dad does is really technical. Um, it just is in the arts industry. And for my mom, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, she's Her job was kind of more as a teacher than an artist, I guess. Um, so I never felt like I was living in a household of artists or anything like that, but I also never felt pressured to do um, anything at all. 
I was just good at math is the simple answer. Um, it's a good reason to pick a major. Yeah. I think, I don't know why, um, I was, I was always like a grade ahead in math and I took a math class at state my senior year of high school and it, it just felt like the easiest thing, like the natural thing. Um, to but how did in. you get involved in, in arts on campus? So then how did I get, yeah, in? How do you get well, I was always it? more interested in arts. Um, my freshman year of college, I joined this organization called Carolina creates music where we would like book shows for student artists at venues on Franklin street, which is where I initially uh, met a lot of people. And then, yeah, like you said, I was performing and producing music for myself. And that's when I met a lot of the people who were performing in Chapel Hill at the same time. Most importantly for, I guess, my path would be Wells, who mm. was in Chapel Hill at the time with his cousins, Mike and Alec, who t- together formed like this independent label called Immaculate Taste, and that I ended up joining with them. So that and they was, were just in Chapel Hill. They weren't students. No, they were just in Chapel Hill. Um, yeah, they just thought it would be a good place to be as a rapper just because there's like kind of a renewing potential fan base. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they made the conscious decision to go out there from Charlotte, or which are, is where Wells was, and Mike was in Hillsborough, I think, at the time. So you're um, performing on campus, yeah. booking shows for other people. Yeah. So I was in a position where I was trying to book for myself, but also... I was booking for other artists, which made the the ask easier, I think, because I had relationships with all the venue owners on Franklin Street. And actually, Glenn Booth, who used to run Local 506, the booking down there, now um, books Motorco. So that relationship has held up for like eight years or something like that now. I'm, we're booking a show right now at Motorco. Will we get to that later? Is that TBD? Yeah. Great. Is that something that you see while you're involved in this? Is it like, oh, this is great because I'm just getting to meet people. It's keeping me out of trouble maybe, um, but not really like a career path. Is this more of a hobby at this point? Um, Yeah, I would say freshman year is more of a hobby, but I think when I was around 19 as a sophomore is when I really made a conscious decision that I would try to do something in the creative fields um, after college. Uh, and maybe it was like disidentifying with the statistics classes I was taking as well. Um, but I never really considered doing anything in math at all after that point. Um, so then it was kind of just like finishing my time at Carolina, um, and finishing my degree. It was never, I don't know. It was never a question for me whether I would finish, like go to school and finish school in, in the way that if it had been. For whatever reason, I think I would have gone a different route. Do you know what I mean? Like, when I finished high school, I, like, had good grades, so I was going to go to, like, a good school, and I never thought twice about it, you know? But had I thought twice about it, I would have asked myself why um, go to college, you know? Um, and Instead of just pursuing right, yeah. music and sort of the creative arts. Yeah, which um, is what I was interested in even in high school. I was in bands in high school, and it was always... I, I think aspirationally, I always wanted to do something creative and it was music when I was in high school and college and then film now. Uh, so yeah, I just finished school cause I was supposed to, I think. Is that pressure self-inflicted or is that coming from your parents? It wasn't, and you did say that your dad didn't finish college. Yeah, so I it, how much he, it wasn't coming directly from my parents, but I just think it would have been disappointing for them. I think that's if I true. I just dropped out for no reason. For college yeah. students in general. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt that same pressure in 2008 coming out of high school. Was that, that, that was 
what you did. You finished high school. Right. If you were a half decent student, you, you would went just to go university to college, because right. you, yeah. the the impression was that you couldn't function in today's society without a college degree. Right. Um, and I, I wonder if the tides are turning on that ideology for high school students now because of how public the idea of like extreme student loans are and the value of a college degree in the economy right now. And the opportunities, and the are, opportunities way different. are way different. Yeah. And the internet has such a different breadth of knowledge. That's maybe, I mean, it did then, I guess, but it's, it just seems like people are more aware of it, you know, as an educational tool. Yeah. And it's not even just, I mean, uh, half the guys in Silicon Valley are college dropouts. A lot of yeah, musicians. It's kind of cool to be a college dropout now too, yeah. and not go to college. Kanye yeah. West made a whole album about it. Yeah. Uh, Although that was out when I made my decision. So I can't even, yeah, I should have listened to that album <laughs> a little bit more. So you start to make some connections while you're on campus. Yeah. Um, but you know you're going to finish your degree, and you you graduate in 2013? Uh, I graduated college in 2016. So are you that young? Yeah. You're such an old soul. Thank you. I always forget. I think this is actually... This is if probably I, the If I go review that the tape from the old my, <laughs> my age. You yeah. sure you're not signing up for retirement? Yeah, I was like born two in days? 1994, Justin. Um, that's why we have a, different music tastes. That's a good year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because, and not to diverge too much, but our our music tastes are pretty different. But '94 in particular is like such a golden era mm-hmm. for music um, across the spectrum, not just hip hop. But um, so you're so you're thinking about music, you're thinking about creative arts, you're making connections, you're getting ready to graduate. Are there particular avenues that you're already exploring for taking your creative passions to the next level or is it like let me just kind of settle uh settle myself into postgraduate adulthood and kind of work some odd jobs until I can figure this out no when I graduated I was really um excited about the idea of going full force on creative things and at the time I was doing a lot of work with Wells um so right after we graduated actually Um, I went on this big road trip, but then we, uh, kind of like got together for a week and made like a whole album. And at that time, and, and still, um, we were performing together and we went on a small run of Waka Flocka's tour. Uh, so it kind of felt like there was some, some momentum, uh, as a music producer at that time, working with Wells, um, and other immaculate taste artists and, uh, it seemed like there is some money in, in shows and performing as well. So there's a little bit of a future in the music and, and art that you guys are building collectively as Immaculate Taste. You're starting to acquire other artists to the label. You're yeah. really building a scene around yourself and Wells and the other artists. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it felt um, at that time. So I was excited to really not have uh, as much of my attention diverted by by class and really go all in on that. One thing that I learned when I graduated college, though, is I had an ideal of with all of the free time that I had acquired by not having to go to class and study and um, focus my attention on that, that I would be able to shift 100% of that into creative work. And I was just extrapolating 
that thinking like, oh, if I spend 100% of my time making beats or creating relationships with artists that I haven't met yet, um, that that would really catapult me into some abstract place that was going to be successful. But what I found was that I was putting a, a lot of pressure on myself because of that ideal that I had to like always be doing something towards that goal um, all the time. And that was really like bad for my mental health at that time. Um, because when you are pursuing a creative goal, especially in, I guess, music production, as I was trying to do then, there's not really one way to do it, you know, um, contrasting with some of my friends who were like going to med school to become a doctor, there's sort of a preset path that you can do, but in creative fields, usually there's not that preset path. So it's kind of up to you to decide like when you've done enough work for the day. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's models that you can follow. There are people that obviously have come before you that you can look to and maybe aspire to their path to some degree. Sure. But but there's an element of luck in there that you can't anticipate or replicate really or replicate. So, you know, the best thing to do to optimize your chances, I guess, would be to work all the time. But that's just not good for your mental health or really that realistic. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I was like really struggling with that when I graduated college. Yeah. It was Sammy. Uh, our friend Sammy came back and he's a, a journalist. He's living out in Albuquerque right now. But when he was here visiting for the holidays, we talked about the Catch-22 as a creative entrepreneur where you see the creative, you see, you see the final product in the future mm-hmm. and you know that given the money and resources and opportunity to see it through, you could do it, but there's no money in it presently. Mm-hmm. And so you have to find other odd jobs. You're kind of doing all these other things right. to make money to then do the creative thing. Right. But so much of those other things yeah, take much up your time, your time you and up, energy right. and your headspace. And so that creative endeavor often takes a back seat. Yeah. And so many fantastic projects get you know, the, um, like one page gets written and Mm -hmm. and you never see it again. But I think that's part of what makes it so it's not luck dependent for that reason, because it's like, you can still write the thing, you know, it just takes that level of passion. That's going to supersede your time that you're spending doing the other stuff, you know, like the ones that make it to me are the people that have the jobs and still manage to write 10 pages a night instead of one page a night and then let it die. You know what I mean? Well, and you have some experience with that. And I, I would love to um, start to talk a little bit about what projects you find yourself involved in outside of Immaculate. Um, but I do want to take a quick break. before then. So we'll do that and we'll come back and talk to Holland a little bit about what he's been up to the last couple of years. So you moved to Durham right after college. You're still very heavily involved with Immaculate Taste, mostly doing music production at this point as opposed to being the front man. Yeah. Um, you've retired. 
your previous project that will not be named. <laughs> you transition into uh, vacay, sort of your life as a music producer. Um, but on uh, sort of in line with that, you are getting into filmmaking. Um, you and I worked with our buddy Ace Henderson uh, for the project Young People that is on your website. People can view that. Um, you can follow Holland at vacay, vacay, vacay on Instagram, on the internet and find that project. So you're getting into filmmaking um, and at some point in your new life in Durham, you come up with the concept for hype. Tell us a little bit about where that inspiration came from and, and sort of the backstory behind the, that project. Sure. Well, as you know. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. This will not be new information for me, but, but I'm sure a lot of me. people um, that have followed Runaway, that have followed you and I have seen the big splashes for hype over the last few years, but may sure. not know yeah. the inspiration behind you as a filmmaker and that project in particular. Right. So another thing that happened when I graduated college is I started working at Runaway with you and Gabe um, and Becky at the time. Which we very much enjoyed. The Yeah, those were the days, man. Um, and while I was there, we were talking about content ideas and I was trying to get sort of a longer form project off of the ground. Um, and at the time, y'all were doing a documentary series that Ned Phillips uh, had done that was sort of vignettes about cool creative people in Durham. It was called The Runaways. And the initial idea for Hype was to do sort of a scripted counterpart to that web series. Um, and this was, I guess, this must have been like two years ago when I first started working at Runaway. Um, hey, Genghis, the dog. I don't know if people will be able to hear him whining in the oh, background, but they can't even hear uh, it. That's going to be fun. But we'll make sure to give him a little spot at the end. If he you should have to a soundboard where you have like a little Genghis squeal that you can kind of just plug in. Will people, makes people like point. that? I don't know. If no, people won't like that. It'll be challenging. I'll just put him on the gram. He gets a lot of love on my Instagram account. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, originally the idea was to do a web series. That was a counterpoint to that. Um, and in the years since, it's grown a little bit in the sense that it. Well, we fund, we did a Kickstarter and fundraised for it, um, and we shot it in the summer of 2017, and in the time since, I have just been editing it, coloring it, figuring out what to do with it. Well, this is a project that you spent a lot of time on. We Right before the break, we were talking about the balance between doing your creative projects, right. you know, 100% full force, and still having to maintain you know, your livelihood. And so yeah, your energy in other parts of your life. Right. So, yeah. um, yeah. What, how much time are you spending every day writing the script, uh, visualizing the, the direction of the, cause you did write it, direct it a lot of the editing as well. Yeah. Well, after the script was written, which took a few months of working on it, I guess probably for a few hours a day on average, um, we got to, and we got the funding from that we crowdsourced, uh, it became much more intense in the like month of pre-production that we did, which was specifically, I guess that boils down to like scheduling and finding locations to shoot at and casting people and coming up with a crew, um, which is stuff that myself and Andy Morgelander, who's one of the actors in the show uh, helped with as well. Um, and then actually the three weeks of shooting that we did, um, 
the work life balance was like was pretty um pushed towards work where that took over my life probably for um a couple of months and it was just three weeks of shooting just three weeks of shooting yeah it's months of writing in pre-pro to do three weeks of shooting to then have months of editing and coloring and meeting with people to figure out what to do with it yeah but the actual onset time was only three weeks and this was really a um but that was really a challenge yeah well and it was a grassroots effort too i mean you you pulled in you know as as many people know it was an all local cast a lot of the crew was also local yeah um the concept of the show was very much rooted in durham right um yeah, the concept of the show, which is about um, rap culture, kind of independent rap culture and startup culture in Durham, uh, framed around one specific character, Smiles, who is trying to buy back the house of his adolescent like girlfriend who had to move away because of rising rent costs is like the synopsis of the show, um, which were all things that came from what I was experiencing in Durham, working at Runaway at AU around a bunch of startups and also working, as we talked about earlier, in the music production world. Um and being around a lot of aspiring artists with like a lot of ambition. How much did uh, your dad's work kind of help in terms of whether it's like gaining inspiration, getting some feedback and advice on? I, he works in in post production sound, but obviously yeah. he's been around film and sets for yeah. a good part of his professional career. So how much does having him as someone you can lean on? I mean, he was, if I'm not mistaken, part of the post production crew. Um, yep with you so how much does he help kind of seeing this project through well from a budgetary perspective we did the whole um five 20 minute episode season which is coming out next month um on ten thousand dollars which if you kind of know about film is basically no money at all so a lot of that was because we were in a particularly advantaged situation where i was wearing a lot of hats Um, writing directing editing and then my dad who is a professional post sound mixer um was basically in charge of the sound so between my my dad and i um we had a lot of the bases covered in a way that if you were say if you were trying to trying to do a similar thing i guess and you only i guess you have like an idea and you maybe want to direct it but you don't necessarily like want to edit it or have the the programs even you know like that can just be a cost that we eliminated and also sound would be the same thing so a lot of the a lot of the reason why we could do it is because we we had a team um that was able to do a lot of the stuff in-house uh so it was it was really important in that way um but if you're asking whether i got into film because my dad was in film um i never consciously no it's it's funny how that because you say not consciously, but I wonder how much subconsciously just that being his profession. Yeah, kind of makes gives me permission to think that I, you know, can be a person that's involved in the profession as well. Yeah. And just you have perspective having talked to him over the years that there are certain pieces of knowledge that you have going into it that somebody else who's never done done film or been around film in their life doesn't have um you know i people sure. always talk to me about 
when I tell them I do podcasting and they're like, oh, like you've got a voice for radio. And I'm like, well, it just so happens that my dad was a DJ and like did student radio when he was in college. Right, and so right, right. even though I wanted to be a teacher coming out of high school, I found my way into doing something that my father happened to be very good at. So yeah, um, it's interesting that, yeah, even though consciously it maybe wasn't a decision, how much just being in that environment plays into paths that you take but um for sure um and but my dad specifically did post sound which means that he was never on like a set of any kind so i never grew up on set so the hype set was like a real learning curve for me and we had like an an immense help from the crew that we put together which was included mandy and um our cinematographer dp bruce cole who has a lot of experience on sets um so i was really leaning on the people with more experience than me on set um but and, yeah and tell people about was... his the, meeting okay. bruce because that was sort of serendipitous that you guys connected and so tell people a little bit about his uh kind of your relationship how it started and his involvement in the show extremely serendipitous bruce is a uh, cinematographer who was originally from durham went to uncsa and then afi to study cinematography and then has been working as a dp um in la and new york for like 15 years now um most recently he did this feature film called Jin that was that played at south by and won a couple of awards there uh so he's like been around and he knows sets um but he was just back in town in durham and saw a flyer when we were doing the kickstarter for hype and said if there's gonna be a show about durham i'm gonna fucking shoot it so (laughs) so he reached out to you so he just i guess looked me up on the internet and found my contact and hit me up and he was like can i see the script and i said yep and then He's like, I'll shoot this if you want. And I was like, yes, please, <laughs> please. But, and now he's, we talk all the time and we have a close relationship and he's like a good friend and, um, sounding board for ideas. And I think we'll have a long relationship. As yeah. Kind it's, of a director it's cool that, DP. I mean, I think that Durham and you I find this all the time that yeah. Durham is good for that kind of, I, it's, I say serendipitous, but it's almost like Durham designs those things. Totally. And people. it wasn't just that relationship that was aided by the fact that Durham has that spirit. Most of the locations that we ended up shooting at, which included uh, like the Durham Hotel, Coco Cinnamon, Motor Co. Um, Bodega. Bodega, uh, Dirty Durham Studios that the Roundhouse guys run. Um, hooked to subjects because they wanted to, it was like a cool thing and it was about Durham and it was in the spirit of Durham. And unique. There's not a lot of narrative film that comes out of this area um particularly in the triangle but really in north carolina since they started cutting a lot of those incentives yep. in places like wilmington a lot of that a lot of the industry has left and gone elsewhere yeah most of the industry left when they cut the tax incentives it's all in atlanta now they brought them back um but it's the politics of north carolina kind of hindered a lot of big productions from coming here even after the tax incentives brought back and we kind of haven't really seen the benefit of it yet. And yeah, in an ideal situation, you know, those incentives keep talent in state and people don't leave, um, to Atlanta or LA or New York or whatever, um, to have to get work on a project. And so with hype, hopefully when it comes out and if we can do another season or a few seasons down the road, it inspires people to kind of stay local just because there's something, there's maybe an idea that there might be a project and inspires here, people know. inspires other uh, people to do projects here as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the 
the government, the state government, city government to rethink those incentives and sort of for North sure. Carolina as a market because for as of, filmmaking. Yeah, how it's constructed right now is that they're all like extremely big budget incentives. So they want like a Marvel movie, you know, to come in and shoot in the woods, which isn't necessarily, in my opinion, the most you won't see as much trickle down for something like that than if they had more grants for budgets that were like closer to a hundred thousand or something like that, or even 50, like 10 to a hundred thousand dollar budgets that they were giving to indie filmmakers to go make a feature on a a micro budget, you know, um, that I think you would really see benefits because then, you know, you don't have to bring in a whole union crew, um, and fly people in from out of town. You know, you can get local talent you can get people that are just, wanting to do the thing and wanting experience um, and you're building the industry from the ground up if yeah. you bring in like you said a yeah, marvel the, movie or I, I, they did the hunger games here exactly and that's what they Asheville. want back right yeah and but th- those people they're coming in they're shooting they're and leaving. they're leaving there's right. not a and they're shooting in the woods you know right not right. no shades of the woods you know there's great communities in rural but north carolina but integrated it's, it's yeah it's not being integrated into the cities um so, so yeah hopefully that's the if it's hopefully it'll, I mean, it might take hype is not going to like be the one project that's going <laughs> to spur like governmental change. Probably, you know, it's probably going to take more than that, but hopefully it's the beginning of a larger thing that leads to something like that. Because I mean, people, I think if people thought that there was film to be made in Durham scripted, you know, scripted projects or in the triangle at large, people would, they would see it as a viable yeah see it as a viable thing and maybe go into the field whereas that's i don't think that's necessarily happening at scale right now yeah yeah it's that we've gabe and i've talked a lot about this and and even you and i have as well with runaway about being not the you know runaway closing in january and a lot of people myself included are you know see it as a, a bittersweet moment but hopefully and and i've said this to a lot of folks that have asked me about sort of what's next and what do I think about Runaway's impact that, you know, it was never the end game. It was how much can we inspire this type of creative entrepreneurship in different verticals, fashion, music, filmmaking, right, um, all that type of stuff right. in our community. And so that people see Runaway and they're like, okay, this is possible. Yep, It's possible to do this kind of work in this area. And I think that that's, happened and and i'm really interested to see where north carolina particularly the triangle what steps we take collectively um to continue to um, push this kind of collective energy forward so now that hype has finished we did the screening at carolina theater Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, folks in the public have gotten to see the the show in its entirety um getting ready to release it next month to the public in january yeah at hypedurham, uh, dot com. hypedurham.com we'll make sure to just repeat that over and over for the outro so people don't miss it but in the time since you've done hype you've yeah. worked on some other projects and you've been traveling yeah um so maybe talk a little bit about what other projects you've been involved in you've traveled back to new orleans a few times to write some scripts mm-hmm. you've been traveling out to la um with your good buddy Taylor Sharp, who is also an aspiring filmmaker and has done some really great projects. So, you know, obviously there's some 
uh, room to grow and, and some opportunities building for you as a filmmaker. So what has that been like? Sure. That's been, so I've got, I went down to New Orleans, like you said, to write a feature film, which was kind of based um, on the experience of Hurricane Katrina and evacuating that. Um, and then Taylor and I, who Taylor went to college with me and he uh, since finishing college, kind of in the same way that I went and made hype, went and made a documentary called Hoops Africa Ubuntu Matters, which is kind of about the burgeoning growth of basketball in Africa and about this like concept in this small town that inspired like the 2008 Boston Celtics title run, um, which was really cool. So anyway, we got together and as kind of the two film people from our graduating class at Carolina, um, we were already friends from school and more explicitly decided to kind of go after this um, as partners. And so in the time since, we've gone gone to L.A., like you said, a few times. We're developing uh, three TV projects right now and one, and then the feature as well. Um, it's looking like we're going to Mar- go down to New Orleans in March to shoot a short film version of the Katrina movie. Um, so that's kind of what we've been up to. Yeah. Will I you mean, guys, will you get, will you try and pull? Of, yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's news to break. <laughs> well, well, we'll save it for the, the next pod that we do. But yeah. um, I just think that it's, it's, um, it's great that you were able to pair with Taylor and kind of use your knowledge together to take, you know, to, to bring all your projects up a notch and, um, the shoot in New Orleans, will you guys use all local crew again? Will you try to pull as much from the local scene or is it a little bit of a different undertaking because you're not in New Orleans every day like you are here? Yeah. Our intention right now actually is to bring a lot of the hype crew hmm. um, that we've made relationships with, Bruce, who I was talking about, and Mandy. Um, we've offered them to come down. Uh, and to be a part of the crew and then actors we've read from North Carolina um, a couple of actors from LA we're considering and then we um, have a friend who's a casting agent in New Orleans that we may involve to try to fill in the the pieces as well Um, so we're still kind of in the pre-production phase figuring out who's gonna act in it and who's gonna crew up but um, kind of a little bit of all over and then there's one scene in specific that's kind of this big party scene that'll feature a lot of um, musicians that are native to New Orleans that are family friends from my dad's days recording music. If you had, um, you know, the industry is changing all the time and film with you know, Netflix and, and Hulu and Amazon and still HBO and, and a lot of in Disney, they're all creating original content right like netflix started out as a distributor and now they're producing a lot of things Mm in-house same thing with amazon disney's now got their uh, exclusive yeah platform that they're introducing what do you think that does for indie filmmakers how much does it help or hurt their ability to create the projects they want to create um and then do you have a uh a preference of where you'd want your stuff to land in the ideal scenario? Uh, yeah, absolutely. My, I've, I really, my ultimate goal is to have an HBO show. Um, why HBO as opposed to the other available um, distributors? I just think that 
the tone of a lot of the shows that I watch on HBO is lines up with my sensibilities in a way that's not necessarily always the case um, with other platforms that have original content. Is there a show in particular on HBO? There's a lot of shows that I love on HBO. Um, I'm really into High Maintenance, which is a show that actually started out as a web series um, made by Ben Sinclair and Katia. Uh, I don't know her last name. But in the same way that we did Hype last year, they they did High Maintenance on their own in New York um, for several years and then got picked up by HBO to develop a show for them. Uh, Similarly, Issa Rae's show, Insecure, started out as a web series that Issa was doing by herself. Um, And even more recently, this show, Brown Girls, that um, is by these two creators, Sam Bailey and Fatima Asghar uh, from Chicago, got picked up and is being developed by HBO as well. Um, so it seems that they support sort of the type of filmmaker that I'm, you know, kind of becoming. So, yeah. Okay. And, and, and these different, um, distributors now they're obviously they're still doing things in house, but it's that model of acquiring independent web series is, yeah. um, seems to be where places like even HBO, but YouTube and, uh, right. YouTube and Netflix. Yeah. They're and and it's lower cost for them as well. Yeah. Cause they can see which, which ideas are kind of working online. Um, and let me be clear. Those are three examples out of the thousands of web series that people <laughs> go out and do. Um, but it is a new way, you know, to get a show on air when previously you might have had to go to LA and be a PA or, you know, do the calls for some talent agency for a while before you end up as an assistant in a writer's room before you, you know, become an actual writer in a writer's room and work your way up like that because of the lower barrier to entry on making video. Um, people can go out and make it themselves and have, you know, a proof of concept for their tone and their voice, you know, as artists which is awesome and it mimics other industries as well. Like you were saying about podcasting in the episode with Mandy, uh, that I was listening to, it's the same thing. Music is the same thing. Um, so we're starting to see that in film as well. Uh, it's a little more difficult to put together a crew usually and go shoot something that's coherent and long form, uh, than it is to, uh, make a mixtape or something sure. from my experience doing both. <laughs> um, but you can do it and put it online and see if people like it, you know? What else? That's what we're going to do. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hope you'll like it. What other, uh, what other things outside of those shows that you mentioned on HBO, um, are inspiring you as a filmmaker? Are there any, uh, web series or, or or films or TV shows that you've seen in the last few years that you would have really liked to been involved in as a, writer director or stuff that you just think is is really dope that you want to emulate to some degree oh for sure um elaine is really great i would have loved to be in the writing room for that one uh better call saul is a show that i really enjoy um there's this movie that came out this year called blind spotting that i've talked to you about before by uh david diggs and his friend rafael casal um david diggs is famous for being on hamilton i think um but it's sort of this friendship movie about race relations and gentrification in the bay area 
Um, and they're both kind of best friends in real life and they wrote this movie together and that was phenomenal, phenomenal. Uh, that's my short list right now. It's just what's coming to mind. What, uh, you, we mentioned a little bit when talking about bringing big budget films to this area, you are a notorious anti Marvel sort of anti superhero movie. (laughs) It is now. Um, (laughs) But something that I read a few days ago, both about um, Black Panther and the uh, new animated Spider-Man movie, is the introduction of different voices into the um, the canon. Into the canon, yeah. With Ryan Coogler doing Black Panther, with sure. um, the guy who did Thor Ragnarok, whose name I'm going to butcher if I try to remember it now, um, but he's a New Zealand-based yep. filmmaker. Uh, what TD, right? Y-T-D? Yes, thank yeah. you. And uh, and even thinking about the Black Widow movie that they're trying to introduce, um, they're looking for female directors for yeah. that. So I wonder if this is a blip or a trend when it comes to big budget film. Will we start to see more and more um, now that the case can be made? Be made, and, and I guess that's true for. Um, has been true for a little while, but people are starting to notice things like Get Out, uh, you know, these really popular films with lead uh, actors and actresses of color, mm-hmm. women, uh, sort of star roles. Do you think that that is coming from sort of the top down because of some of the su- success of these indie films? Or do you think that is a... Um, you know, has to kind of start with these superhero movies and sort of the more big budget, like stuff that you know is going to hit. I mean, it, I imagine with the success of the MCU, with the Marvel movies to this point, that they had a pretty good feeling about whether or not Black Panther would at least hit their marks. Maybe it, they didn't anticipate it to be the highest selling movie that they've done, but um, that it would at least like make back the money they put into it. Um so you're asking, do I think if, do I think the success of Black Panther enables people like Jordan Peele? Yeah, or just um, d- do you think that more people will take a chance now on diversity in film? Oh, do do these tra- yeah, of do course. things like Black Panther? I mean, it's always enable- com- it's always linked to the finances. Yeah, um, the demographics are always linked to the finances. Um, so yeah, the success of Get Out and the success of Black Panther should open the door um, to more diverse creators. Um, but yeah, again, in in, in the finance in the film financing world, it's really all about like the bankability. Yeah. Of usually the actor first, um, but in the case of big time directors, the director also, and then in the case of superhero movies, just like having a superhero story in it. Um, but because you have, I guess, a, a wider breadth of stars that are of color and are women, um, yeah, that should open it up a little bit. I mean, what Hollywood is, is notoriously the... pretty staid and yeah. white and male, you know, and it takes time and it takes like amazing independent film from people who um, are diverse and might not necessarily have gotten the opportunity to open the doors. But I think more than anything, and this might be kind of cynical, it's like that 
Get Out made so much money or that Moonlight made so much money is why. Not that they were great like, pieces of art. Right. They were. Right. But they could have been great pieces of art that made way less money. And then that's not as um, the trickle down of that isn't as uh, widespread. Is kind of how I see it. And do you feel like the these big budget? Um, it's not. It's mostly. Super, I mean, in, in this in this last few years, it's been superhero movies. But there have always been sort of the like these trending styles that suck up a lot of the available capital for film. And so, do you? Is that part of your animosity towards? Well, yeah, it's like big CGI, yeah. Like, but even yeah. like uh, like Avatar and stuff like that. Um, I have less animosity towards Avatar than I do for um, superhero movies. Why is that? Because superhero movies are a genre mm. of movie that are so expensive to produce. And I think this is going to sound so pretentious from like an artistic standpoint are like not that exciting to me personally even black panther which is like or notably like the diverse dark the dark knight i i think is a really good movie i do too <laughs> so yeah. that's like an exception to this and also of late i've been boycotting superhero movies so mm-hmm. i haven't even seen very many of them so this what is, is like me being dark ignorant. knight that you think bucks the trend that goes against what superhero movies stand for why do you like it probably mostly because of heath ledger's performance sure. specifically yeah which I guess you could find within any other superhero movie, like a great is, singular performance. Yeah. But what? But my my main complaint is that I think that you can only go so far within like one specific style or genre of movie. You know, like the diversity of storytelling is limited when you're always talking about like superheroes in specific. Yeah, and I mean, so all of the money and resources are being poured into these movies and it's dictated by the audience. I don't like fault Marvel or anything like that. I yeah. fault like the moviegoer. <laughs> like for the cost that um what's like a shitty one? What's one that you didn't like at all? Uh I don't know. I kind of What about like I'm not a good the Superman? Ask. First oh, Batman. Oh yeah. Well, didn't sure. People all the DC one? movies are have been Okay, so awful. take it like take a DC movie with that amount of resources. You could make like 30 five million dollar indie movies you know what i mean like get out like moonlight right and you could have such an incredible diversity of um voice um but the economics of that yeah are less feasible right well and even if and that's kind of my complaint with it yeah even if all 30 of those ones that you're talking about made more money than they cost the chances that they are blockbusters in the way that get out or yeah Yeah. or even the super the marvel movies have been well that's what it is i mean studios want to want to spend a hundred million dollars to make a billion dollars you know they don't want to spend 10 million dollars to make 20 million dollars which is like i understand the economics of it which is why i'm not like fired up about it (laughs) and that's always Um, maybe the trouble but it's um, it's frustrating from like an artistic perspective i think because it is dictated by the audience and it's just these are all like popcorn movies for the most part they're not that thoughtful 
and they're not adding much to culture for me. Yeah. Well, and even some of the, you know, I've watched the Marvel TV shows um, like Daredevil and Luke Cage and mm-hmm. Jessica Jones on Netflix. And even those as they, they are different than the, the films in tone um, in sort of the um, actors and actresses that they use to headline the shows. I think um, Kristen Ritter, if I'm getting her name right, from Jessica Jones, uh, who was in Breaking Bad and has been in some other stuff, is probably the most high-profile lead character from all that. But ultimately, they still come down to a fistfight at the end. Right. Like As different as the tone of the shows are, Daredevil in particular is very dark compared to like Captain America. Um, right. But in the end, it, it comes down to, like, can this person beat this person up in a fist fight right and that's what i mean by there's like a limitation to the storytelling like (laughs) people always who are advocates of superhero movies are always like oh dude like you got to see this movie it's like so good for a superhero movie or like um what's the one with ryan reynolds deadpool people like oh my god deadpool is so funny like even though it's a superhero movie like but it's all in humor about superhero shit right you know, so it's like all within, it's all like couched with this pretense that it's like, I know it's a superhero movie, but this one's like actually kind of interesting, but it's like kind of interesting. It's not like, right. like, um, I've never seen one that's like blown me away. Do you feel, uh, but, and there's a place for that, but like Avatar as an original movie is different enough for me from, uh, I don't even like what's another huge kind of just independent yeah. sort of in that vein. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's hard to, come I mean, now they're all superhero not, movies because yeah, it's, it's <laughs> so it's hard or, or sequels. Or, yeah. Yeah. Or so it's hard to, you don't even find them anymore. Yeah. And even avatar is, um, has sequels is coming, is out, coming yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. With sequels. I, I do want to touch on the, the dark Knight a little bit because I, something about that one and, and Batman as a character has always been one that I felt, because he's not, he's just a, a smart guy, like a with, guy with money and a good, you know, mechanical engineer. Yeah. Um, it's his story is a little like, bit more yeah, grounded tangible. Yeah. yeah. And, and even the end of that film, it doesn't, it's not really about can Batman beat the Joker in a fist fight. It's, right. it, there's a psych, there's psychological warfare that's happening there that, right. um, that, that feels, does, that feels human, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I so I would I would lift that up as a film to aspire to, right? Um, f- even for the superhero genre, that sure. it doesn't have to. So I guess it's not. To, yeah. So theoretically, they could all be great, but it, in practice, I feel like I'm always rolling my eyes. And and you're right that it's a it's up to the audience to decide that they want something different. And to this day, they haven't. Yeah. Like when Captain Marvel comes out next year. I'm going to go see it. When yeah. Infinity War sequel comes out, I'm going to go see it. Like I, yeah. I'm, yeah, you're I'm the problem. Conditioned. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go see <laughs> Hype too and, and all the other projects that you're working on as well. So I'm, I'm playing both sides here. Uh, last thing, and then we'll get out of here, something that I want to ask you and, and ask others that uh, come on this show is what are you passionate about right now? It doesn't have to be like your filmmaking doesn't have to be work, but just like something that you, that takes up a lot of headspace that you just like feel really, really, um, that you're, you really invested in. 
individually honestly right now i'm i'm uh writing a new movie that's largely um about climate change i guess and i'm really into that i'm really into i'm really passionate about climate change and really frustrated um by the lack of response and conversation around it because it's fake exactly no just the opposite isn't that what steph curry said no, Steph Curry said that we didn't go to the moon oh. and then backtracked and uh. got a free invite to NASA out of it. So we should just be trolling <laughs> yeah, anyone institutions on the internet mm-hmm. to say they're all lying to us and yeah. get a couple free uh, plane tickets out of it. Well, I think climate change is a great you know, passion project. It's something that um, I've actually seen a lot more of in this area. Um, surprisingly, North Carolina is in the top three, I think, in solar production, yeah, which I was really surprised about. There's tons of solar farms in Massachusetts. If you ever get a chance to go up north, when I was there this summer, it's like if there weren't animals on the land, there was solar panels. Yeah. There was like hardly it's the any. cheapest means of, produ- of uh, producing energy now. Yeah, so hopefully we'll um, learn our lesson soon because we don't have too much time left. Yeah, so I look forward to the um, hype spinoff. That's all about climate change yeah uh holland thanks for being on the show this has been great i've missed podcasting with you and all the the crew yeah from back in the day uh we did say we were going to shout out thrill city oh yeah i meant to shout out thrill city earlier huge influence on my college time seems like got me involved ryan did podcasting with us also on thrill city there's there's some threads here people you just got to keep up um Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been episode five of the Buddy Ruski Show. Again, as always, if you haven't checked out the Patreon page, go do that. Patreon.com backslash Buddy Ruski. That is Ruski, not Rusky. People still seem to get that wrong, even though I've said it a million times on this show. Patreon.com backslash Buddy Ruski. Check out that. Uh, sign up for the newsletter as well. That's a great place to get updated on this show and some other projects that we're working on for the new year uh have a great holidays make sure to go check out runaway before everything's sold out i think i might have missed my window uh, so don't be a fool like i have and uh, we'll see you next time peace